Category design is not a marketing strategy. It is a business strategy, which means you need to understand how it affects the link between marketing, sales, and company culture. Welcome to the Category Thinkers Podcast, a feature of the Category Thinkers community. And while other category design content channels may focus on extolling their understanding of category design, this one is specifically to help you think like a category designer yourself. Today's conversation is with the legendary HubSpot executive, Dan Tyre. And Dan shares with us the backstories about the creation of the inbound category, specifically how it relates to his crossover in talent between sales and marketing, which he calls schmarketing. He talks about the impact of culture and the importance that is to category design, and also how he consults smaller businesses to adapt category design into their sales strategies. This is a conversation with Mike Damphouse, aka Damp, co-founder of the Category Thinkers Group, and a longtime friend of Dan's, and another one of our co-founders, me, Pablo Gonzalez. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Category Design Advisors, whom you can visit at CategoryDesignAdvisors.com. Category Design Advisors has helped hundreds of companies figure out their POV, understand category design, and align around it. I recently attended one of their workshops in New York City, and if I was a company that was looking to invest in category design, I would definitely, definitely, definitely go to CategoryDesignAdvisors.com. And our other sponsor is BeTheStage.Live, my company who coordinates and produces this podcast and the community strategy. If you want to work with a company that can help you create content that deeply understands category design and how to create content around it, go to BeTheStage.Live. And last but not least, what we really want you to do is go to CategoryThinkers.com, join our free Slack community of over... 500 other category designers and stop just listening to this show and become part of the conversation. You can do that at categorythinkers.com. Go into the free Slack community, join us, pop in and say hello and start connecting. Now I'll leave you to this conversation that is kicked off by Damp introducing Dan Tyre. We're all a bunch of, we call ourselves a band of merry pirates and everybody, everyone enjoys life. And to, to kick the whole conversation off, I need to say thank you, Dan, because you're the butterfly that waved your wings back in the 90s that started a wave that created a tsunami that ended up putting Linda, my wife, into my life. And if it wasn't for you promoting her, the sales management, I never would have met her. So thank All you. Right. So uh, you're welcome. That is a perfect microcosm of my entire life. I am constantly getting credit for stuff that I played a very small role on, right? And maybe I made the introduction, but you did all the heavy lifting. And how long you've been together with Linda? We've been together now since 2006, I think. So, right, so 17 years, right? So introduction is like um, 0.0001% of the entire relationship. So good for you. And I have to say, Pablo, can I do a little fanboying on, on Mike here? Can I like... Go ahead, Dan. You may. Okay. How many people you uh, run across and say, I'm a strategy guy and they don't do shit, right? They don't understand strategy. They don't understand it works. When I first met, he's like, I'm a big picture guy. And he had the background experience and uh, vision, the big brain to actually carry it through. And of all the hundreds and thousands of people say, I'm a strategy person, Mike embodies it because he always looks big picture, right? He did in multiple industries. He sent me the book. Oh my goodness. He sent me the book. I can't believe it. When it first came out, I'm like, wow, that's awful nice. And it could be your autobiography there, Mike. You've always thought long-term vision. You've always thought strategic advantage. You've always thought competitive advantage. And the first time I read it, Right. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. This guy's got a lot of ego. Right. The second time I read it, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is like the playbook moving forward in the 21st century. So thank you very much for doing that. I remain a huge fan. I'm happy to be on your podcast. 
I may be the only person in this podcast that may be louder than you, Mike. I'm not sure, <laughs> right? But I was voted the loudest guy at HubSpot three times. I used to share a, a desk with Darmesh, right? Which he's an introvert, so it was a little bit unusual. I know. And happy to share my experiences and understanding of category design as chapter two says, the category is the new strategy with your listeners. Well, it's funny. There's all these led growth things, right? Product-led growth, event-led growth, community-led growth. And I've got an article I'm going to publish shortly called Category-Led Growth. And it really, the book came out seven years ago. Our partner, Kevin Maney, was the co-author with the our good friends Play Bigger, Christopher Lockett, Al Ramadan, and Dave Peterson. And the book has continued to trickle up as yes. opposed to most business books that kind of go in a upside down U-shape. Play Bigger is out of print almost at least once or twice a month. I can't get copies. Amazing. And that does, it bodes, it, it's very interesting. When I was doing research for this podcast, I look back on my 45-year business career, right? Which makes me sound like your grandfather, but it is. That's the actual like longevity. And this play, the category play, has been evident for 50 years. Uh, 70 years, but we didn't describe it as an actual strategy, just something that happened out of the blue. The brilliance of this is that you can be intentional, right? And smart folks who see the right characteristics can then apply it in ways that it's 10x, right? right. And anybody who's followed the market for the last um, 20 years know that uh, we never had trillion dollar companies before. Now we have five that are trillion and one three trillion dollar company. That's not going to change. Right. With the advent of technology, right, you have to play a different game. Right. And category thinking, right, becomes a de rigor discipline from the very beginning. Right. From like we started the podcast, I'm saying, do you have to be like a thousand people company to do it? And you're like, no. Right. Which makes a lot of sense. Right. And spreading that to entrepreneurs so that they understand and it's in the back of their brain so that they understand and articulate the concepts and move in that direction is a huge competitive advantage. Dan, I want to expand on something here. So it's interesting. Category design, when it was introduced in the book, you're absolutely right. The likes of Henry Ford, Clarence Birds, they were Steve Jobs, they were creating categories naturally. Um, but the book introduced it as a dis discipline. What we realized over the years was there's the discipline and it gets you through the process, but then it takes five to 10 years to build the category. And that's where category thinking comes into play. And category thinking, it's really funny. I did my research too over the weekend. You recommend a book to your mentors, Succeed by Heidi Halverson. And she's got a concept in the book where basically she suggests self-control is like a muscle, right? We need to work it. We need to train it but not strain it. And that's what we, when we came up with category thinkers back in the fall, where I reached out to Pablo and John and said, hey guys, category thinking is the muscle memory. Category design is a discipline, but category thinking is the muscle memory. It's what you do every day. It's what you've done since whenever it was 2006 or seven, when you started with HubSpot, category thinking is the reflex. And the discipline to be there every day and always remember there's a category strategy to be had. So tell hey, us. Hold on a second. Be, let me riff off that because like, brilliant. Number one, discipline requires that you actually do stuff, right? And there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. You can riff it and you could just like hope you stumble onto the right approach. But if you're following somebody who's done it previously, right, you have a better chance of success. There's a lot of money on the line. Right. If you own a category in the 21st century, oh, my goodness, you're talking about billions or hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars. That wasn't always the case. My historical examples, like in my father's generation, was the biggest company a lot. Right. They were dominance. And uh, then this little company out in the western part of uh, Massachusetts, Digital Equipment Corporation, came on board. And I'm sure you remember a deck. Right, Mike? I was part of a cleaning crew when I was 18 years old, and I used to sit down and program at a VT100 and write code at nine o'clock at night instead of emptying trash bins. See, yes. yes. There you go. I, I'm like, how big was DEC? I looked it up this morning, $14 billion and 180,000 employees. 
That's wow. when people had secretaries and they actually assembled the units like with human beings. Amazing. And I had the very good fortune of working with Jack Shields, who was essentially the co-founder with Ken Olson. He was the COO, right? He always thought categories. I never called it that. He's like, you know, they'll always kick our ass if we're selling mainframes. We're going to sell something different, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, let's call them mini computers, right? And just like, like, I don't know, having ordering a ham sandwich at lunch created this entire category. And then over the next two decades, right, created one of the most recognizable, differentiated technical hardware companies in the world, right? And I knew the guy. And I'm like, how did you ever think about that? He's like, we didn't have any choice right? We couldn't compete against IBM because they owned everything. So we had to really move on that. By the way, my first stop in 1981, right? I worked for a horrible company in 1980, the worst run company in American business. They had an exclusive to sell Apple computer east of the Mississippi, and they found a way to screw that up. Inventory problems, nepotism, no motivation, no culture. It was horrible. So my uh, boss, Roger, came in one day. He's like, I'm quitting. I can understand why. He's, where are you going? He's gone. I'm going to a startup. I'm like, what's a startup? It's like a small company that grows very quick. I'm like, all right, knock yourself out. He goes, no, I want to take you with me. I'm like, I got a job. He's like, I'll give you $100 more a month. I'm like, yeah, I'm a startup guy, right? So I joined the startup, Businessland, right? Who The people who are over 60 will remember that. Sold personal computers, right? In the old days, you went into like a computer store. What was your first computer, uh, Mike? It was a Apple, the one that had two boxes, the original Apple. You had yeah. an Apple II. Okay. If you still have it, it's worth a lot of money. I sold yeah. the Apple IIEs and Apple threes, right? But when I moved this company business later, it went from $2 million to $1.4 billion in nine years, right? Yeah. And I went from being a salesperson to their turnaround expert. So it was a great nine-year run. And I became a startup guy. The reason I bring that up is because my second historical example was compact computer. And Pablo, do you remember Compaq? Absolutely. What do you remember about Compaq? They kind of invented the laptop, right? Close. The luggable, right? Here's another example of, they're like, we can't compete with IBM, right? They have desktops and we're like a me too. How about if we get a computer the size of a suitcase? Now, everybody who's like under 30 listening to this podcast are rolling their eyes. They're like, what are you talking about? But anybody who's ever had one, right? It was, I don't know, probably two feet by one foot. And people would put them in the luggage rack when you could bring on luggage on a flight. And you'd like carry your computer around. This was before like real laptops. And a compact developed into a $40 billion company by creating that category. And it was more of a reaction than a thoughtful process moving forward right? And amazing as it um, rolled out, right? And a perfect example of how in the old days, it was just part of the marketplace. Today, if you're not spending time on defining your category, understanding how to evolve your category, moving forward in in that category, right? Establishing leadership, then you're missing a huge opportunity. I remember carrying one of those big compact luggables, I love that term, to a nuclear facility in New Jersey, I was 20-something years old, and I was supposed to get the nuclear plant running again. And I had to carry this damn thing in, and I remembered I ripped my pants on the metal on the way up the stairs. I got back, and I said, I want to submit a receipt for my pants. And the CFO said no. Well, I eventually got the $40 back. Put it that way. All right. Stories from the road. That's what happens. Amazing. Uh, Anyway, Rob Canyon, who was the uh, genius behind Compact, right, pivoted and what could, it would be impossible to understand the impact that was, but there's got to be, and he had a huge opportunity that if he applied category thinking towards that from the very early stages, right, it would have had a huge positive impact on so many, in so many ways for the company, for the employees, for uh, users, that it's just, I just thought it was a perfect example. Well, part of the reason I think a lot of the, those PC companies, they it's not that they failed, they're still predominant in, in lots of places, but they followed DOS and Windows. So the ecosystem that the category needed to survive is what dictated the future of the category. And if you look at, for instance, HubSpot, the ecosystem, right, HubSpot University, all the certified, I was certified in 2008 or nine, and if I look at what your play was, 
building a category ecosystem is as important as the big idea in the different POV. A hundred percent. And it was very interesting. I've had five successful startups in my career. HubSpot, I've been there for almost 17 years and by far the most uh, successful. And they did everything different. Uh, Brian and Darmesh, uh, very thoughtful founders, uh, defined the category just like you uh, ascribe in uh, your discipline very early. Right. Uh, as the first salesperson for HubSpot in 2007, people would always ask me two questions. Number one, what is inbound? And number two, does it work? Right. And it's a little known story, but I was HubSpot's third customer before I became their sixth employee. So I knew it would work. So I had the credibility of uh, talking. But the HubSpot example was brilliant. Right. We didn't invent inbound. It was actually invented. Do you know who invented it, Mike? No, I don't. It was invented by this guy, David Meerman Scott. And if you oh, run across David Meerman Scott, he's the nicest guy in the world. He's a music he's freak hard. and a travel. Yeah, he's a good buddy. He's been advisor of HubSpot for many years. He's spoken at virtually all the inbounds. Every time I see him, he gets thinner and he's always smiling, right? At the inbound conference at September in Boston, I, I look forward to seeing him. And he wrote a book in 2006 called The New Rules of PR and Marketing. It's in its eighth edition. It's just like you were saying, it's one of those things that never goes away, right? And he wrote, I got this email somewhere in my my email. He wrote a book. He's the first person in print to say this like traction marketing. We uh, refer to it as inbound marketing. And Mike Volpe, who was our first CMO, sent him an email in March of 2007 and said, we just started a software company around your concept of inbound. And because Darmesh and Brian didn't like try to control it, right? They did the exact opposite. They're like, we're HubSpot. We're going to be the leader in inbound, but the category is going to be inbound, which was amazing at the time, right? It, we intentionally said, this is bigger than just one company. We want to be the leader in inbound, but everybody can participate. And the characteristics, I was reflecting on the characteristics why HubSpot's such a good example. Number one, it was innovative, right? Like it's hard to explain to somebody in 2023 what life was like before search, right? You ever try that, Mike? What try to explain to a Gen Z person what life is like before you Google? End up using examples about rotary telephones and CDs and yellow pages. Like, yeah, what? yeah, right. Like go to your grandmother's house and go in the cupboard, and she's got like a stool with three uh, like things that don't balance, and underneath there, there's this big fat yellow book. And uh, that used to be a multi-billion dollar business. I think it was $15 billion and now it's like nothing. And, and they're like, okay, well, I guess. And they roll their eyes, but it was very innovative at the time. Uh, number two, it was easy to understand, right? Because we use the example of uh, everybody know what outbound is and people hated outbound, right? I hate to break this to you, Mike, but in the early stages of your career, the companies that you ran weren't always at the top of the credibility and or love charts, right? And so the, the it, it, people understood the concept of attraction marketing or inbound marketing. Uh, and it was simple. And uh, we were able to explain it without a lot of acronyms, right? Some of these categories have so many acronyms, right? That the layperson can't really relate or understand. And I'm sure that's part of the discipline that you teach so that you have these common concepts that people understand, right? And inbound was easy, right? Outbound was you're like shooting out to everybody. Inbound is you're attracting and helping, not selling, which was amazing. And uh, then, as I said, HubSpot uh, established and created the industry, but didn't claim ownership. In fact, specifically said it's open to everybody, right? Because that was part of our ethos. Uh, and then to your point, scaled very quickly. Mm -hmm. and why do you think inbound scaled so quickly, Mike? Well, first off, everybody was suffering from the problem and categories are built on top of problems. And there wasn't an executive or a professional out there that didn't get five phone calls a day that you'd block them, you'd hang up on them, you'd let them go to voicemail. And I chuckle because you're right. I built my part of my career on the, the outbound world and actually successfully sold it to a publicly traded company. So I, I'll say... I pulled the parachute at the right time and have moved on, but everybody was suffering from the problem that you solved. All right. And very, very astute. One other thing, we had a component of the category who was very motivated to change, and that was marketers, right? Marketers are the nicest people in the world. I'm a schmarketer, 
which I defined that term. In 2007, Professor Thomas Steenberg wrote a uh, white paper for Harvard Business uh, Review about, it was called Web 2.0, the HubSpot story. And he talked about schmarketing and he heard it from me, right? Didn't describe Dan Tyre, but I've spoken at Harvard previously. And he said, yeah, I, I took it from Tyre. And to be used this as an example, I didn't create the category. I just like threw it in the public domain. I didn't care about it. And, but it could have become a, if we carefully curated it the same way, it's possible that it could have grown and developed into a very valuable property. But for in the ecosystem, in inbound, marketers were incredibly motivated. They were incredibly motivated to move from outbound. So the timing, very appropriate. Everybody instantly understood it. They could experience it themselves. They wanted to end it. And there was a subset of that category that was super motivated and had budget that wanted to change. And that was one of the critical aspects of the incredible scale of HubSpot in the early days and in the first decade, going from zero to $100 million in seven years. Dan, so inbound should be a chapter and play bigger if we were writing the book again. But HubSpot emerged, HubSpot grew, and there's probably some growing pains in there. You came out with HubSpot sales. Next thing you know, people are using it because you had a great product-led growth model, start for free, then 50 bucks here, 100 bucks there. Next thing you know, you're an addicted HubSpot sales user tied to the marketing product. It was a brilliant play. And then, I don't know, maybe five years ago, started examining well, what category are we now? Because now we've got sales blended with all the inbound marketing. Were there any growth pains along that way? Tons. Now, there's difference between multiple products and a category, right? And I would still, I think inbound has grown to the point where HubSpot is considered the leader, but I don't think we we control it anymore because it's too generic. It's too large. HubSpot refers to ourselves as front office software. Right. We refer to ourselves as crafted, not cobbled. Right. Because one of the benefits of HubSpot is one code stream. Right. In the old days, right, 30 years ago, when you grew as a company, you bought other companies and mixed their um, technology together. That doesn't work in uh, 2023. If you have the same code base for your sales operations service, it's just a lot easier. And like we can prove it. So the evolution of uh, inbound continues. Right. Uh, sometimes they refer to it as growth software. Sometimes it's inbound growth stuff. In 18, I wrote a book called The Inbound Organization. And it was everything that I learned in regard to the scale of businesses. It does have a lot to do with the category because inbound and upspot was synonymous. And a lot of the decisions that we made weren't necessarily tied to revenue growth, was tied to helping before selling. The two like uh, foundations of uh, inbound are number one, treat people like human beings, right? We're all trying to get through this world, right? Just treating people like human beings. And the business context of that is the absolute cold call. Now, the organizations you ran, uh, Mike, weren't really cold calling. They were warm calling. You always did your research before you called. You knew what you were talking about. It wasn't the exact same thing. But if you're a boiler room or a cold call house, right, calling 120 people, Oh, this is a good story. I was just speaking in uh, New York and I was uh, doing this presentation I called the inbound revolution, which is pretty interesting because we talk about the timing of creating a category. And by 2010, I'm like, I don't have to tell anybody what inbound is anymore. We've been doing this for three years. Everybody knows. Pablo's like, yeah, tire. Good luck with that. Uh, I still have to tell people what inbound. People still squinch up their nose in 2023. We've been doing this for 17 years. I take it as a personal affront. I'm like, you haven't seen any of my audio. You haven't listened to any of my podcast. I've been pounding the table for seven years. And guess what? Going to be another 20 years, right? That category discipline that you talked about, the good thing for you guys is never over, right? Because there's all these twists and turns. Now you get eaten from underneath or from the side or people rearranging the category all the time because there's enough people talking about the discipline where you've got to first create it, then you got to protect it. Uh, anyway, I told you that I would give you at least one example where HubSpot like step into a pothole in that. And as I was reviewing my notes in, uh, I think it was 2015, we had a uh, product, a uh, content management system. 
a CMS, essentially. And we spent a lot of time, Brad Coffey was one of the early HubSpot employees and brilliant and ran our product and dev organization for a long time, said, maybe we can create this category called the COS, a content optimization system. And I'm like, that's brilliant. That's amazing. That's exactly what we do. It's different because it helps drive leads. It helps drive revenue. Let's call it a COS, right? And we did. And it was summarily unsuccessful, right? And I was one of the most vocal advocates because at the time I ran the small business division at HubSpot. I'm like, this is exactly what our customers want and we can create it. And I was very wrong. It just confused people. And they didn't understand what a content optimization system was. And there was all these questions. And to HubSpot's credit, they realized that and rolled back the decision. So they relaunched uh, the HubSpot CMS, right, which like plays into that category designation rather than to create a, a new one. Well, it's okay to live within an existing category as long as you have a point of view that differentiates your product. And so being part of CMS, which that's been around since the 90s, right, CMS systems is okay because your point of view was our CMS is integral to the DNA of lead generation. And that was, I don't know what words you would use to say the same thing, but that's what broke HubSpot apart from the rest. The, the comparison I'm um, drawing is that inbound immediately resonated and we carefully curated using discipline to continue to build. COS, we didn't follow a discipline and for whatever reason, it was uh, unsuccessful. But like 99% of the decisions at HubSpot, if we don't make the right decision, we just roll it back, right? It took us a year and there was a lot of like pain associated with it, but it ultimately made the right decision. And now the HubSpot CMS highly coveted and works very well for thousands, tens of thousands of websites all over. So the, the steps necessary to create, to start, to envision, to start, to curate, and then protect the category has to be top of mind for entrepreneurs. You sent me a very good text yesterday, Mike, about portfolio companies. Right. I have about 30 companies that I've made angel investments in. And one of the most successful is a company called Chicory. It's the world's largest recipe site. They have their widgets on all these recipe sites, right? The brands for all of the um, uh, product companies. And uh, they created a term called contextual commerce. And they believe in the power of recipes to inspire computers to drive commerce. Right. And they describe themselves very intentionally as the leading contextual commerce advertising platform, transforming recipe content into commerce media. And I'm like, yes. Okay. Easy to understand, especially if you're in the consumer products area, right? Easy to understand the competitive advantage and plays into exactly what everybody wants, right? If you have a recipe site, you don't want to just offer the recipes. You want to offer the recipes, but also understand how you might be able to make a little money off of it. And Chicory and Uni and Joey, who are the co-founders of that company, have done an amazing job of identifying that category and helping it grow. Now, how, so it's funny, you mentioned the $5 trillion companies. We worked with one of them last year, the LinkedIn Sales Solutions Group is part of Microsoft, obviously. Working at a company that's that far developed, right? And HubSpot, you're, you guys are, I don't know, 16, 18 billion. I can't remember the market cap offhand. But big companies can do category design, but startups, like you just talked about with Chicory, are, they're like, clamoring to do it because that's their they're claiming their space in the world when all right it's, it's true i got two examples one okay. is uh this guy uh i've been friendly uh, with him probably for 30 years and my second startup he was our uh, chief architect and uh, my second startup was ali technologies and one of our customers was a large consumer products company that hired us to do a Lotus Notes installation. And Lotus Notes for people less than 30 years old uh, was a collaboration software product. And they asked us to do something very specific, which was to connect browser-based, right? This was 1993. So it was the Netscape browser or uh, Microsoft's early browser. And it was like cutting edge stuff to an ERP system, right? So it was browser-based access to uh, ERP backend. 
right? And it was hugely um, innovative and controversial. And so, because no one thought we could do it, right? Back then, you bought an SAP terminal, right, to get into SAP or Oracle or something like that. And it was a, a large revenue stream. So, using the internet to ha- like essentially tunnel in and getting that information was absolutely cutting edge. And this guy, Adalipa Wajanaika, right, created this concept, right, and implemented it. Right. And it was browser based access to ERP. We called it a decision portal. I don't know who came up with that, but a decision portal, or sometimes we just refer to it as a portal. And then, of course, the whole browser based access to anything back end, like grew in this company, ALI, the one I started merged with InfoImage in Phoenix, right, was the world's leader in this browser based self service portal right? Which was an amazing kind of thing. He's done it again. Right now, he works for Boston makes a company called Flowrite, right? And intentionally creating a, a category called workflow management software, right? Which once again, they're a leader in that category, right? By creating the technology first, right? And then building the category around that. Right. And I think there's a couple of ways to go. Number one, the entrepreneur can sit there and say, I think this is the direction that we're heading. That's the way uni went at Chicory or the product led kind of thing. We got this. Maybe this is not just a product add on or product extension. Maybe this is a whole different category that needs to be marketed in a way that we haven't thought. Well, we so something that was not in play bigger is what we call the category formula. And we basically say that a category equals a shift in context, so context, plus missing the problem or something that's not there that can't be solved, plus innovation, like, for instance, the crazy acceleration of AI the past year. So context, category equals context plus missing plus innovation. If you use that simple formula and apply it to every conversation you just gave us, right, every every piece, there's always a shift in context. There's always a missing or a problem. And then there's some innovation that allows you to solve it. Um, we use an example. We, we use Ikea as a simple example to, to describe it. After World War II, people started wanting to refurbish their house, put new furniture in. They also started getting cars, but there were these little tiny cars that had no room for anything. So the founder of Ikea said, the shift in context is the economy's rebuilding and people are rebuilding and we have cars. The missing is you can't get furniture into a car to get it home. So the innovation is let's use Allen screws and disassemble all the product and put it in a box and let people bring it home and put it together. And now you have Ikea, this billion dollar size company that was all built on that solving that category formula. And I think going forward, if you keep that formula, it's real simple to remember in the forefront, every like I see startups all day long. We do office hours like you do, and people come to us and just ask questions. And I get pitch decks all day for angel investing. And that formula is like my litmus test. If I see a category and I can't unsee it, that's when I'm ready to write a check or get involved as category design advisors and work with them. And it, it's such a powerful formula. Yeah. So the there's two questions that I had for you guys. It's number one, is there a size of company? Because I had an analyst in 1993 say, no, you're only 300 people. There's no way you can create a category. And she may have been right at the time, but I don't think she's right now. Now we have substantive examples of people who are 20 folks who are intentional about creating the design and becoming the industry leader in that category. Would you agree with that? So I'll tell a story. Back in the 90s, I had a startup. We needed at least a million dollars and 20 people to just get to a demo, not even a not even an MVP, just a demo. Today, not today, but nowadays, I spoke to a CEO that has got her company going for just three months on a credit card, an AWS API license. And she's already at 100K a month in MRR. And you can start a company today like for nothing, not for nothing, but the resources are always there, always available. And then she could turn around now and go to AWS and say, I'd like to exchange API credits as for equity 
you're going to invest in my company by letting me use your technology. It's amazing what you can do today. So the answer to the question is, yes, last year we worked with a a company that's part of a trillion-dollar business, Microsoft. And this year we're working with a company that's two guys and a credit card. Either way, you can build a category. The difference is the momentum and the stage along that six to 10 year cycle that it takes to build the category. Two guys on credit card, they're way at the beginning of the curve, but as they build the category, eventually there'll be a dominant design that gets chosen. And if they're the ones that led that POV cycle and the market is willing to accept them as the chosen POV, it's the category right there. So the answer is you can start at any time. Frankly, I would rather start early than later. Because shifting the billion-dollar companies, there's too many MBAs in the room. No offense to all the MBAs in the world, but they're hard to shift. So, hey, Dan, speaking of shifting, I wanted – it's on my notes. I want to touch on it. You did something for me in probably 2008 or nine. I forget. I was down with you. You had me working on a project for a short period there at HubSpot. And I remember you telling me about a startup called Kiva. And I – thought that was the coolest thing. I'm always one to enable people and help people. And I'm driving home and we we used to run incentive spiff programs all the time in our business. And I was trying to come up with creative spiff ideas that week. And you had Kiva buzzing in my head. So I get back and I look up Kiva and I see, oh my God, I can make microloans to third world countries and help people that are trying to be entrepreneurs in, in, in their economy, their world. And so I took Kiva micro lending and turned it into a sales incentive program for our company. And it was one of the most in, in, in successful SPIF programs we ever ran. We would have people during the day to earn the right to choose Kiva investments. And we did that for about eight years straight until I ended up handing over the reins. I don't know what's going on now, but I, Appreciate that. And I wanted to thank you for that. And it leads me into this. Companies are a key part of category design, company culture. And company culture for you, you talk about it all the time. You promote Kiva still to this day. You talk about diversity. You talk about things that are bringing opportunity to to people that otherwise might not have had opportunity. And I, I think that the the aspect of the company culture plays into building a category as much as anything else. Okay, that's a wrinkle. You didn't feed me that in the uh, briefing notes, but brilliant. And uh, I give a presentation called Culture and Growth, the two most important things that any entrepreneur really needs. And uh, once again, I have to uh, give lots of credit to Katie Burke, our chief people officer. I'd never heard of a chief people officer. I'm like, why do we need somebody like that? And Katie Burke is MIT trained, been at HubSpot for as long as I have. Immense brain. And she was a brilliant mind around the HubSpot culture code. If you're not familiar with the HubSpot culture code, just Google it. Uh, um, The story goes, Halligan went to a CEO meetup and uh, met the founder of iRobot, the little vacuum company that you got in your dining room. And the guy leaned over to Brian and said, what are you doing about your culture? And Brian's like, I'm not doing anything with my culture. And went back to Darmesh and said, do you know anything about culture? And Darmesh is like, no, but I'll research it. And Darmesh is a great researcher. So he researched it and came up with 127 slides in a slide deck, right? Which that's pretty good research. And then published it. And from that very start, it's now 147 slides. We say HubSpot product is for our customers. Our culture is for our employees. And when I wrote the book, Inbound Organization, 2018, I asked all the senior executives, what's more important, your employees or your customers? What do you think they said? Employees. Why? You're right, by the way. Without the employees, you have no customers. I don't know why I didn't come with that. It used to be customers first. You got to treat your customers better than your employees. But it's a different employee in the 21st century. And exactly right. If you don't have happy employees, you're never going to have happy customers. Right. And with declining birth rates in virtually every uh, country in the world, if you're able to attract, retain and uh, motivate the best employees in the world, you'll win. Right. You will win, which is amazing and exciting. And that's why that culture is an important component of that. Anyway, HubSpot has the culture code now, which is an acronym called HEART. H-E-A-R-T. H stands for humble. 
I'm not very good at the H, but it's a good one to remind people because as my beautiful wife, Amy says, like ego destroys more market cap than alcoholism across the world, right? We've all worked with these high ego folks that just can't get along. E is empathy, which changed. It used to be effing effective. And then Katie changed it to empathy. And I was a little bit, well, what's going on there? And then she's right. As you scale over 7,000 employees, you have to have empathy for other folks. Uh, A is adaptable. Amazing. When HubSpot laid off 500 folks, um, first time ever uh, in 2023, we had to be adaptable. And because we had that in our culture code, people like uh, moved forward, embraced it, understood it. R is remarkable, right? It's harder to get into HubSpot than uh, MIT or Harvard, statistically based on the number of resumes. So everybody there is a, a player. And then T is transparent, which is a critically important component of scaling in the 21st century. You see all the time from the NFL to tech companies to consumer product companies, things coming out that were internal only, that if people were just transparent about their decision process and what they were doing, it would solve a lot of problems uh, and create a lot more uh, market capitalization than uh, trying to trick people or lie or blame or something like that. And that culture, we spent a lot of time and money. We have a culture team right? We have this lady, Megan Williams, who's responsible for all of our remote uh, folks. I think she is in human resources, but she's not the typical human resource person. And uh, trying to cultivate that connection amongst HubSpotters, which is critically important for us to continue to be category. Thanks for that, Dan. We got a, a member of our community, Mike Grimberg, who's actually like really fascinated on this idea of culture is a piece of category design, right? Like You can't really build a category king without a great culture. And I would love to having the community to have that conversation with him. But a, a big question that I have, coming back to coming back to your first question, right? Your first question of, do you need a hundred person business in order to really define a category? I want to poke around at, at your thoughts in that, if we can. And the first thing I'd love to ask you is, when you think of designing a category or becoming a leader in a category, what do you mean? Creating a category is redirecting how people think about a particular problem. And to answer the question that I asked is that it's different now, right? As many things are, right? Everything changed for me in 2007 when I had an opportunity to uh, evaluate how HubSpot scaled via uh, Mark Roberts, the first vice president of sales, the senior executives. Of the first 10 employees in HubSpot, uh, nine were MIT Sloan School trained. We only hired people from MIT except for me. Right. And so it was amazing to see how people thought intentionally about what they were going to do. And then everything changed again in 2012. And then everything changed again in 2014. Then everything changed in 2019. And now everything changes every four months. Right. That adaptable A in heart becomes very important. So as Mike has given multiple examples, you can be a three person company. You can create a category. Right. The key is understanding what that category is, describing it in a way that people understand what it is and have an immediate affinity for it, right? And then uh, the scale part, right? Which is a little bit harder for smaller companies, but in the example that you gave, which is a good one, right? My first, second startup, I raised $400,000 and 250,000 of it went to Dell and Microsoft so that I could have email for my employees, right? And my buddy, Matt with one T who runs Seed Scout, started a company in Phoenix for 50 bucks. He's like, yeah, the state of Arizona rips you off, right? I'm like, no, it's a lot easier than it was before. So I think the timing question is start early, right? If you're going to be part of an established uh, category, watch it very closely. I really like the term that you uh, use, the discipline of watching it. And if you think you can create a category, I'm sure Category Thinkers has a checklist to walk through, you have to make sure you have this and this, and it's whatever uh, worth whatever you guys charge. If you have aspirations to really create a category to make sure you're not missing things like culture, which is not like discussed normally when you're talking about this kind of scale. I, I can imagine that you have this unique perspective of you, you've been in the guts of an absolute category design story and category king. And you clearly speak about it in a very knowledgeable way as this is a business discipline, right? Like you're talking about culture, you're talking about top-down yeah. kind of strategy, yeah. but you're also a sales guy and you sell to small businesses, right? Like you head up the small business division. And I wonder what you would tell 
to the sales leader that's in a small business. Maybe they're not in one of these like rapid scale up companies, but they're in one of these small businesses that you sell to. They're let's say they're a mechanical contractor with a new way of like putting a new fan array or something like that. And their CEO founder comes in with like, I just read Play Bigger. We're going to design a category. You're no longer selling the product. You're selling a problem. What advice would you give to in, in that interaction at that scale? That's a good one. First of all, I'm not a sales guy. I'm a schmarketer, right? Schmarketer. I, I now work for marketing. I'm no, I no longer run the small business division. And I work for Courtney Sembler and HubSpot Academy, right? And I am in marketing. I work in Kip Bodner's really? organization, which is amazing. He's a great guy. John Dick, the same thing. And Courtney Sembler runs HubSpot Academy. Just a, a brilliant person. I, I looked up the average tenure of a sales, sales VP. And do you guys know what it is? God, it's got to be 18 months. It's 18 months. You win a breakfast sandwich there, Mike Dampaus. I was going to guess a year and a half, but I was way off. I, I know. Uh, it's a little longer for a marketer. But the reason why they're hesitant to embrace something like this is because they think it's going to disrupt the flow of what's working today, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. Now, the key in doing anything hard, and let's all agree, creating a category is hard, right? Everybody wants to do it because it's so lucrative. It's friggin' hard, all right? And if you think you could do it by yourself or you could do it in an afternoon, it takes months. It takes years. How about isn't even finished with creating the inbound category? It's 17 years in, right? You just increase your um, chances of success if you're following a roadmap, right? For us, it was easy because it encouraged favor, right? When you talked about inbound, it was, we had what everybody wanted. It was a competitive advantage. Everybody else was doing all this stupid stuff, this outbound stuff that didn't really work. They knew it didn't work, but they had to do it because they didn't have any other choice, right? The old line sales management would be like, yeah, I know it doesn't work, but it, I, I can't stop it because it does bring in a loan. The young people and uh, the innovative, it wasn't necessarily age, but innovative VP of sales would be like, no, it's exactly opposite, right? We're going to try something different. Number one, either because we have to, number two, because we're just going to test it, or uh, number three, because it's a better way to go. So what the thing that we constantly suggest is just try it, right? In the old days, when you were going implementing a CRM, it was like multiple uh, quarters and your productivity went in the tank. In 2023, you install a HubSpot uh, CRM in an afternoon, take three salespeople and use the category verbiage, vocabulary, and a playbook. And if they don't outperform your core the sales team in a six month window, then you got to pivot and do something else. And it's totally different. That constant experimentation lends itself to people trying this, right? And the one piece of advice I give to sales leaders, if you're not going to do it, guess what? Somebody else is going to. According to Upstart Research, the average company has over 50 competitors in 2023, 50, right? That means somebody's going to stumble across the book, talk to you guys, understand that there's an opportunity, and then you're playing catch up rather than what I heard from you there, Dan, is a couple of things that I really resonate with. It, and it's one, you almost described it as a generational shift, right? This like native analog to native digital, how we're all going that way. And people don't like that the old way of doing things. So you've got to be constantly trying new things. Second, I heard you say, you got to try the category verbiage as a salesperson. And if it doesn't immediately work for you, right? If, if as the leader, the verbiage and the way that you're addressing the problem isn't working for your team, then you're not right on, on the POV yeah, or the you verbiage. You do all the work, right? Because yeah. part of the work is making sure that it resonates. It's not about yeah. you, right? Yeah. The one thing we've learned in 21st century is it's all about the uh, employee and the prospect and the customer. They do always help before selling. If they don't recognize it immediately and have a positive um, response to it, then you got to pivot. Of the 45 companies we've done category design for since the book came out, the ones that I would consider unsuccessful, I won't use the word failure, have a common denominator that the one part of the company that didn't stand behind the category design effort was sales. What would you say to the head of revenue in order to encourage them to continue down a category strategy? Yeah, you either uh, test it out and try it right? Or you're putting your um, industry leadership or your company at risk, right? This is, uh, you guys are still a little early, right? But there's enough people talking about category uh, design now that when you have 50 competitors, there's somebody out, that, uh, out there right now, 
They may be in Romania. They may be in New Jersey. They may be in uh, a lake house in New Hampshire driving a boat around an island. But somebody out there is thinking about this category. You either have the option of uh, being proactive and defining the category to your advantage or letting somebody else do it. And then you're, by definition, at a disadvantage. Right. And it's not like you have to throw everything at the category. Let's just try it. Just test it. Right. Just take three people and see if you get a different response. Right. When you're talking about the problem, the potential solution and how your product can fit into it. That's phenomenal, man. Dan, is there anything else that coming in here you really wanted to hit on before we wrap out of here? No, this is a very important thing, right? It used to be like an esoteric, academic kind of thing until the book. And then great organizations like you started helping companies of all sizes realize that it's a necessary, it's a necessary step to building a billions of dollars worth of value. Like you said, right? It's not just the purview of $5 trillion consumer packaging companies that got plenty of budget, right? If you have an interest in trying to create a generational kind of business, right? Then uh, we now have the tools to create that category. And so I urge everybody to talk with Mike and Pablo and John, understand, right? The baby steps right? Understand that creating a category is within anybody's wheelhouse, right? It's just a lot of work, right? Anything good, valuable usually is a lot of work, right? Once in a while, like you just fall into it like GovSpot and Inbound. Although that's a little bit of a misnomer because Brian and Darmesh have been dealing with that for a year, right? Calling it different things and like digging in to understand how it resonated with folks even before we came out of it. So it was a lot of work. And if you're willing to do the work, then you have an opportunity to gain the spoil. That's great, man. I, I, listen, I would just say, don't just talk to us. Go to the Category Thinkers community at categorythinkers.com and join the over 500 other people that are having this conversation. I appreciate you, Dan. This was great. Yeah. Just do something, right? Recognize this is an important component of scale and start taking action. Cool. There you go. Another conversation designed to help you think like a category designer. Please support our sponsors, CategoryDesignAdvisors.com and BeTheStage.Live because they're the ones footing the bill for this thing so you can enjoy it. But more than anything, we'd love to hear from you, uh, whether it's in our community or if you could leave us a review for this podcast if you're enjoying this thing, subscribe to it, hit five stars, let us know what you think. We can really, really use that. And don't forget... Stop just listening to this thing. Join the conversation by going to CategoryThinkers.com, joining the free Slack community, and come meet the other 500 plus category designers just like you. See you in there.